and uh, I'm going to preach your face off in 15 minutes if you help me. <laughs> Will you help me this morning? If you're new around here, I'm a hollaback preacher, which means the more you holler back, the faster I preach, which means the quicker you get to go to lunch. You testing me, huh? We're starting this brand new summer series called Under Pressure. Yeah, this is, this is my kind of church, you know? As soon as you, you say a word, every one of you quotes a heathen song. <laughs> Under pressure. Man, there are so many different types of pressures that we feel and experience in life. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about these different pressures. My, my pressure that I'm going to talk about real quickly is this pressure, regardless of what generation that you were born in, the pressure to fit in. And it looks different depending on what generation you're a part of, but we all have these different types of experiences. I look at like the gospel stories of, uh, you know, Peter, the disciple, uh, denies Jesus three times. And then there's this moment in John chapter 21 where Jesus redeems Peter because Jesus is a redeemer. And there's three different times that he makes Peter say, I love you. I love you. Right. And he's like, oh, you're the rock of the church. You're the church. I'm going to build my church on you. And uh, right after this moment, John chapter 21, verse 21, Peter's looking around right after he was redeemed. And he looks at the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, who wrote that about himself, which I love that he writes that about himself in the gospel. And he says this, he says this phrase. He says, what about him? What about, what about John? We do this. I do this. I'm not, I'm not going to say you do this. I do this all the time. Like, right? I, I compare myself with other people's life. I compare myself with what other people are going through. And it's always like, what about them? And all of a sudden, I'm creating a pressure in my life because of my comparison. This happens uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 17. One of my favorite gospel stories is David and Goliath, right? David shows up to fight uh, Goliath. He doesn't show up to fight Goliath. He hears Goliath talking on the battlegrounds, and none of the Israelites have stepped up to fight him. It's been 40 days and 49 that Goliath has taunted the Israelites. And, and David walks into King Saul's tent. He's like, I'll fight him. I'll take him down. And so King Saul puts his armor on David. Why? Because the expectation that Saul had was that a soldier was going to take down Goliath. And so he put on his own armor on David. Why? Because there was this pressure from, from Saul that David had to fit in to be the type of warrior that Saul expected to take down Goliath. This happens to you and I. And here's where I want to land this morning. It's just going through the life of Jesus. I want to give you some things that you might have never thought about when you think about the pressure that Jesus probably lived with in his life. Have you ever thought about this idea of the pressure that Jesus probably experienced growing up, realizing that there was no boy his age? Because King Saul, or King, uh, what's his name? King Herod killed them all. King Herod killed all the boys two years and older, try, or two years and younger, trying to find Jesus because he heard that the Messiah had come, according to the prophet Malachi. And the, you know, the wise men tried to find Jesus. Most scholars believe that he was about two years old when the wise men actually showed up to where Jesus was. And King Herod found out about this and murdered all the babies two years and younger that were Jewish. That means that Jesus grew up with no one his age. What age was Jesus when he figured this out? I don't know. In fact, some scholars, I just read this this week, believe that the reason for why we have very little about Jesus's adolescence and teenage years was probably because he was in hiding. Interesting to think about. 
And then let, let, me, let me paint this picture for you, okay? 21st century Americans do not think like first century Jews. 21st century Americans don't even think like 20 century Americans. Let me paint a picture of what's happened in the last 20 years. Language has evolved, y'all. Evolved. Have you ever heard these young kids talk? 20 years ago, I was in high school, which is crazy to talk about. But when I was trying to describe something as cool, come on, Mikey, help me out this morning. I would say the word dope. I would talk about a drug. That's dope. When I got to college, this word changed to sick. That's sick. Mm. So dope, so sick. Can you imagine if in like a thousand years from now they discover our language and are trying to, help, trying to understand and translate what we were trying to talk about when we use the opposite to describe something? We even called good things bad. That's bad. Do you know that this generation will now, you know, when I was growing up and, and we saw an attractive woman, we would call her like a rocket or, man, that girl's hot. Woo, so hot. My mom got so offended when we would describe women as hot. That is so disrespectful. Don't you call that woman hot. Do you know what kids call girls that are attractive today? Baddies. Mm. She's a baddie. And all your teenagers that are around, some of you are sliding in your chair. Why? Because you're embarrassed. Because your language is getting exposed. Okay, so what, what describes something as cool, used to be dope sick? Do you know that kids today, it used to be lit, but then, you know, gen uh, millennials started saying lit, and the Gen Zers were like, that's not cool, we got to change it. So that, that trend only lasted like six months, and now they use different things to describe lit. That's fire. Here's the new one. That's gas. My man right here is embarrassed. Right? That's so gas. Oh my goodness, that's gas. If you don't have teenagers, you don't understand what's being said right now. This is how our young kids talk. And Isaac right here in the front row, who's so embarrassed that I just used his first name, is so mad at me because I'll ask him every single week about the new trends because I want to fit in. And then I want to really just embarrass them. It's fun to embarrass the younger generation. I used to make fun of millennials until I found out I was one. So now I have to make fun of Gen Zers because I'm not one of them. Language evolves. You realize that there are, there are words today that we cannot say or don't say but 60, 70 years ago, they were common language and they meant something completely different. So this is what I'm trying to help you understand. If language has evolved within a century in our own culture and own context, there are far too many 21st century Americans that are reading an ancient text, putting their understanding into something that meant nothing like it does today. Here's an example. Maybe you didn't understand this. Maybe you don't know this. But according to Malachi, when he talked about the coming Messiah, the Jews expected this Messiah to do something specific. You want to know what that was? They expected this Messiah to come with violence, 
to overthrow the Roman Emperor. So when Jesus is on the scene and he quotes the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he starts addressing the things the Messiah would do and the way the Messiah acted, there are specific reasons why the scriptures tell us that the Jews wanted to throw him off a cliff. Because Jesus did not fit into the mold that they had expected the Messiah to look like. Jesus comes with peace, and they expected a Messiah to come with violence because these Jews, the first century Second Temple Jews, were oppressed by the Roman government. Week in and week out. They even, the Roman government even created something called Pax Romana, which means you could not have a war during this season. Why do you think that the Roman government would establish this idea that no one could fight, including the Roman government? Newsflash, the Roman government ruled the entire world at this time. They were putting this law into effect because there were people called zealots. Zealots were Jews who were trying to form armies to overthrow the Roman Empire so that they would no longer be oppressed. Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' disciples, is one of these. Think about that. Jesus did life with people who put pressure on Jesus to conform to an image they expected the Messiah to be like. Here's where we're going to land in the scripture today. In John chapter 6, you get the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Very interesting that we are given the number of people that attended this sermon. Now, there's only two reasons for why people were counted. One, for a census, and that wasn't happening right here. The second reason, I'm going to tell you in a second, it wasn't for church attendance. The disciples weren't about to tell Jesus, hey, we better make sure there's 6,000 people here next week. The reason for why there were 5,000 people counted is because when Jesus fed the 5,000, which was just the men that were counted, so most scholars believe there was anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people at this sermon. The reason for why there were 5,000 is because they were an army. Don't believe me? John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, right after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people, it says this, after the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. Now don't go to verse 15 real quick. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they're standing, they're listening to Jesus. He's starting to perform all these miracles that Malachi said that he would do. And they're believing that their Messiah actually is here. And here's how we know this is an army. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why were the first century Jews there to crown Jesus by force? Because when you understand what's going on in the first century, they expected their Messiah to show up and overthrow the Roman Empire the way that they expected the Messiah to show up. The pressure that Jesus must have felt in this moment to fit in is often why he withdrew himself to get alone and pray. This even happens when we, when we learn the word Hosanna. Hosanna, right? It got famous in the 90s when Hillsong took it. It means save us. So when the first century Jews 
were singing the word Hosanna, they weren't talking about saving them for an afterlife experience. You do realize that the Sadducees didn't even believe in afterlife. So 50% of Jesus's crowd didn't even believe in afterlife. Jesus wasn't addressing afterlife in a lot of these conversations. When they sang Hosanna, they were, they were saying and screaming, Jesus, save us from our oppressors. Totally different context totally different understanding. And what does Jesus do in this moment? He rides into town, into Jerusalem on a donkey. A donkey symbolized peace. According to Malachi, he was supposed to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. Why? Because the Messiah was supposed to come and establish his kingdom on earth, just like the kingdoms they expected him to. This is why the disciples even argued about who was the best. This is why the disciples even wanted to see who was going to sit at the right hand of God in earth, on earth, in the kingdom that God was supposed to establish here on earth. The point is, though, is that Jesus did establish a kingdom on earth. It was a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. And this pressure that was on Jesus week in and week out to conform to the image that the first century Jews expected the Messiah to show up and be like had to have been overwhelming under pressure. What image are you conforming to because of the pressure that people in your life put on you. In fact, here's how I'll close. I got two ways to get away from this pressure that you put on yourself and that people put on you. In fact, we measure tire pressure by something called what? Not a tire gauge. That's how you actually measure it. What's it called? Air pressure. What's the three letter? PSI. PSI. Thank you, guys. Third time's a charm. PSA, pounds per square inch. This is how you measure tire pressure. Here's the PSI to remove pressure from other people's expectations. Here's the PSI of how to remove the pressure that you often feel to fit into whatever context you do. PSI, proper self-image. Proper self-image starts with understanding that you are a son or a daughter of God regardless of your behavior. Proper self-image. So many people, when I get in counseling sessions, one-on-one with people, so many people don't have a proper self-image because of the real-life trauma that they've experienced in their life that they have put on themselves and create an identity in, and it's not your truth. Proper self-image. I have this thing on my office. If you were to go in there, it, it, it reads on my whiteboard. It says, I love me. I'm not my body. I'm not my accumulations. I'm not my accomplishments. I'm not my reputation. I am a son. And I say that over and over, week in and week out. Why? Because I constantly need to remind myself that I am not to fold to the pressure that I put on myself and the pressure that other people put on me. Do you guys know that being a pastor is like one of the worst jobs in the world? (laughs) Because there's a lot of pressures about how a pastor should act and the things that a pastor should say. My college roommates, who were Christians, all from a young age, just like me, always made fun of me, even though they were Christians, just because I was training to be a pastor. Man, can you believe you're a pastor? My father-in-law is right here in the, in the second row, and he'll tell you that I am the craziest person and pastor that he knows. And I love that title. What I don't love is when people start to dismiss me because of a pressure or a perception that they have of how a pastor should be. pressure. You need to get a proper self-image. The second is simple. You need to predetermine 
success, and importance. And I said predetermined. Here's why. You live long enough, you will start to define success differently. And success is defined differently. You get to determine what is success to you. And no one else gets to tell you how you define success. You get to define the success. But what happens is if we're not careful, we will begin to measure our financial success with other people. And there will always be somebody richer than you. We will begin to define our accomplishments to other people. And there will always be people who are more accomplished than you. We will begin to define certain things in our life based on the season that we are in. And this is why it's so important to predetermine what you define success as because you need to constantly remind yourself of that in the seasons where you like to compare yourself with other people the most. I have a friend that just just got me in touch with this life coach and he shared this conversation with me recently. He, He worked like a dog for like 15 years to try to build up his income doing his side job so that his side job would become his main job because he defined importance as being able to be present and involved with his kids at home. So he worked up until when he was 35 years old, he quit his job and he began working for himself. He worked like 20, 30 hours a week. It was some tech company. It became really successful. He was making like six figures a year and he was happy, only working 20, 30 hours a a week. He was very involved with his kids, very involved with his wife, great marriage, great life. And all of a sudden, he started to compare himself with what his competitors were doing. His competitors, which were making like half a million to a million dollars a year. And he started to want to do that based on the success of his competitors. And so he called up one of his life coaches. And his life coach reminded him of one thing. When you were starting out, what was important to you? Time with family. You see, we oftentimes get into this mindset of comparing ourselves with other people or wishing for the life that other people had. And usually it's the people that are super successful that have the money that you wish you had. The problem is, is you don't think about the stress that those people endure to have what they have. I talk to friends all the time that want to be a CEO of their, com- uh, of their own thing. And I'm like, you don't want to be a CEO. Do you know the stress and pressure of being a CEO? Do- you don't work 40 hours a week. Come on. Some of you know what it's like to have your own company. You don't work 40 hours a week. You're working 80 to 100 hours a week. Right. If we're not careful, we can define success and importance based on what other people do. And it puts this pressure on us to give up things that we defined as successful to give up things of what we think are important. And so as you go to lunch, wherever you go today, as I land this plane, I wanna encourage you, talk with your friends, talk with your spouse. What is success to you? What is important to you? And let's start to remove this pressure that society puts on us, that our friendships put on us, that our parents put on us, that our family members put on us, that we put on ourselves because life wasn't meant to be lived with pressure that is toxic. Maybe some of you need to get a proper self-image before you define success and importance. Maybe some of you need to know that you are good enough, that you are worthy, that you are loved, 
and that there are people that want to do life with you. Life is better connected. Maybe you need to have some real deep conversations with your spouse this week about what is important and what is successful. So you stop running on empty and start living life being present in every season that you live in. Is that good advice for you today? I don't want to tell you how to live your life. I want to encourage you to find hope and life in Jesus, knowing that Jesus lived with pressure to conform to the image that the people wanted in his day. And if Jesus did that, that's something that's real for us to struggle with. And may you release some of that pressure today so that you can experience the fullness of God and the fullness of the relationships that God has you in in this season. Let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you didn't succumb to that pressure so that you could show us what a Messiah really was like, a Messiah of love and peace, a Messiah that chose to lay down his life instead of fight for it. May we be challenged by that, but may we be encouraged by that. May this week we begin to get proper self-image. And may we remind ourselves about our predetermined successes and what is important to us, whether that's family, whether that's climbing the ladder of work, whatever it is. May we find hope and rest and peace in you. May we recognize that that's our mission field, to make your name famous. And may we walk through life without the toxic pressures that this culture tries to put on us. May we live free and boldly and passionately for you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.